If you've listened to my podcasts, you know that I'm a veteran. You know that with active duty, reserve, and National Guard time, I've served over 35 years. My military service has been a formative and normative part of my life. Let's get something straight at the outset here. I'm no hero. I wasn't a SEAL. I wasn't a Ranger. I didn't earn any medals for valor in combat. I'm just a guy who showed up, went where Uncle Sam told him to go, and did what he was told. Just like hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of veterans have done. For my generation, the infamous boomers, military service, uh, at least among the working class and lower middle class, was a fact of life. The greatest generation, those who fought World War II, were hale and hearty when I was a teenager. Millions of men and a lesser number of women of my parents' generation were veterans of that conflict. My younger uncles were veterans of Korea, while my cousins, my classmates, my brother and I all faced the Vietnam draft. There have always been objections to compulsory military service. History tells us, if one listens, of draft riots during the Civil War. One of the reasons for the War of 1812 between the U.S. and Great Britain was the involuntary impressment, that's a draft, of American sailors into the Royal Navy. Objections to military conscription rose to a crescendo during the Vietnam War, with objectors burning their draft cards, leaving the country for Canada, and millions more seeking legal ways to avoid the draft, with college student deferments leading the way. An entire industry grew up in the 1960s, educating young middle-class men on how to avoid the draft. Those options, by and large, weren't available to working-class young men. Every American president, from Harry Truman to George H.W. Bush, served in the American military during World War I or World War II, even if their service was brief and not particularly hazardous, such as Ronald Reagan's stateside duty in public relations or Lyndon Johnson's seven months of active duty in the Navy from December 1941 to July 1942, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, veteran status was virtually a requirement for a successful political career. That changed in the 1990s when Bill Clinton, who successfully avoided the draft, defeated George H.W. Bush, a World War II naval aviator. Since 1992, no American president has held veteran status. Although George W. Bush served in the Texas Air National Guard during the Vietnam War, he never served enough time on active duty to be considered a veteran. Although American males are still required to register with the Selective Service System in the event a draft is ever reinstated, compulsory military service for all practical purposes ended in December 1972. The military conflicts we have fought since Vietnam, although long and grinding, have not required the massive numbers of service members of the World Wars, Korea, and Vietnam. Even though the nation maintains a significant military force, far fewer people today have military experience than during the last half of the 20th century. Virtually all of the World War II veterans and Korean War veterans are gone now, and the Vietnam veterans, now in their 70s, are rapidly passing from the scene. That's a lot of history there to get to my subject. One of my listeners wrote me to ask, can you imagine your life without having had the military experience you have? 
As a non-veteran, he had other questions, too, such as, how does the discipline of the military experience transform the future of young people's lives? Not career people, but just those who did their stint. Frankly, I can't imagine my life without my military experience. I suspect it would have been a lot more boring, a lot less traveling, and a lot less career success, but perhaps more family success. Hard to say. I give all that history about the draft and veterans and expectations in mid-20th century because it shaped my life and the lives of my contemporaries, both in age and class. My brother and I were both expected by family, friends, and ourselves to serve. It's what working-class kids in the age of the Cold War and Vietnam did. We played with toy soldiers. Our bicycles were fighter planes, shooting down kamikazes and Nazis. Every stick was a rifle. The Boy Scouts taught us to salute and wear a uniform. Our uncles kidded our dad and each other about whether the Navy or the Army was a better outfit. I applied to the service academies and received an appointment to the United States Merchant Marine Academy. My eyesight and my right eye was too poor to pass the requirements for commissioning, although two years later it wouldn't be too poor to flunk the draft physical or prevent enlisting in the Air Force. Forsaken by the academy, I took the full scholarship offered by the University of Illinois, where I proceeded to major in pinochle and beer drinking for a year the combination of which led to a less-than-stellar academic performance and an invitation to leave the halls of academia. The selective service system required me to maintain adequate academic progress to keep my student deferment. Adequate progress was defined as 30 semester hours a year. Having failed Spanish, my transcript showed 26 successful hours. I knew an invitation to serve my nation would soon be forthcoming. I left Champaign, got a job working on the welding line at Caterpillar, where my dad worked, and bought a car. Ten months later, I got a letter demanding my appearance at the Chicago Military Entrance Processing Station to take a physical examination to determine my fitness for service. After being poked, prodded, and subjected to various humiliating procedures, many of which you may hear described in Arlo Guthrie's masterful Alice's Restaurant, I was found to be physically fit for induction. From that point, I knew I had but a few weeks before I would be drafted into the United States Army. I began a round of calls upon military recruiting offices. I knew I wasn't going to go to Canada to avoid the draft, and rather than be subjected to the whim of the draft, I thought I'd like to have some control over where I'd be going and what I'd be doing. Four of my fellow football-playing classmates had elected to join the Air Force. A couple of others were Marines, while yet others were drafted. Even though the term of service in the Air Force was four years, rather than the two years required by the draft, I signed up for the Air Force. Why? I'm still not sure, other than that I didn't like the fat, blurry-eyed old Navy recruiter, and I hadn't been able to see either the Army or the Marine Corps recruiters. So, flyboy it was. The draft-fed military didn't have to pay recruits much. Even though draftees weren't assigned to the Navy or the Air Force, and seldom to the Marines, many, if not most, recruits joined those services in preference to the Army. My pay upon entering the Air Force was reduced 75 percent. 
which gave me plenty of reason to hate the Air Force. The training was neither physically nor mentally taxing, and my military duties were, by and large, spectacularly boring. The best thing about my three years, nine months, and two days of active duty was that I was able to pick up another year and a half of college during that time, which enabled me to graduate a year and a half after discharge from active duty. What else did the Air Force do for me? It gave me nearly four years to mature and to gain enough academic work ethic to go from flunking out of college to maintaining honor roll grades while working part-time jobs to add to my GI Bill stipend. My military service also provided me the GI Bill and the Illinois Veterans Tuition Waiver Scholarship. Using those educational benefits, I graduated with a journalism degree and no student loan. Armed with that journalism degree, I went to work at a small city newspaper as a sports writer and later a police beat reporter. Those were the days of Watergate and Washington Post reporters bringing down a president. I quickly learned that the glamour of newspaper writing didn't pay enough for me to escape the paycheck-to-paycheck poverty of working-class America that I grew up in and desperately longed to escape. With enough GI Bill benefits remaining to fund law school, two years after graduating from journalism school, I started law school. I hated law school with as much passion as I hated Air Force basic training. I was poor. I was subjected to mental discipline. I had professors who were just as bullying as drill instructors. I persevered. I had no choice. I had to escape poverty, and I saw no other way out. Law school was an endurance event. I survived it. By using my remaining veterans' benefits, I graduated with only a $1,500 student loan. Since my 11-year-old Volkswagen Garmin Ghia convertible with over 100,000 miles wasn't worth more than a few hundred dollars, my net worth showed a negative balance. But I had a new union card, a law license. Without the veterans' educational benefits, it's unlikely that I would ever have obtained a bachelor's degree, let alone a law degree. Without the discipline I learned, or perhaps a more accurate phrasing might be, without the discipline I had imposed on me in the military, it's unlikely I would have finished law school. I stumbled into the Army National Guard, much like I stumbled into the Air Force. A couple of years after graduating from law school, I had my student loan and some other bills I needed to pay. My legal career was off to a slow start, and I needed some extra money. I joined the National Guard thinking I'd stay a couple of years to use my once-a-month weekend paycheck to pay off my debt. With the law degree, I could get commissioned as a first lieutenant, and as a veteran, not be required to go through basic training again, not to mention receive a nice pay bump as an officer with six years of enlisted service. Thirty years and many adventures later, I retired as a major general. Had I stuck to my original plan and left the National Guard after a couple of years, I might not have had the adventures, travels, boredom, and excitement of 30 years in the Army National Guard. But I would still have had the discipline, the maturation process, and the veterans' benefits provided by my initial term of service. Luckily, I did stay in the Guard, which provided me with much of the grist for the mill of my podcasts and stories. While I've made many mistakes in my life, I don't count my military service among them. And I wouldn't change any of those mistakes that I've made 
for I learned from each of them, and they shaped the path which I've trod to arrive where I am today. Some of the scars from those mistakes hurt, and some of the pain will never go away, but I'm grateful. We keep that one word sign on our refrigerator grateful. It's a reminder to be grateful for the many things for which we owe gratitude, among them, my military service. So the answer to my listener's question is, no, I can't imagine what my life would be without my military experience. Just as I can't imagine what my life would be without my military experience, so must it be for all those other veterans out there. Whether a single hitch or a 30-plus year career, the discipline instilled, the team values learned, the adventures beyond a hometown, and the veterans' benefits accrued all shape the lives of millions of American veterans and their families. Don't get me wrong, military service is not all peaches and cream. There are the family separations, the dreary, dull duty in the back of nowhere, the danger of wartime wounds, both mental and physical, the toll on bodies from clambering out of helicopters, trucks, and Humvees laden with rucksacks, weapons, and ammunition. Countering all of those is comradeship, esprit de corps, the mingling of races, creeds, and religions. There's the growth in self-knowledge, self-confidence, and loss of selfishness. Back in the 1990s, my dad and many of his contemporaries wore tattoos from their time in the military. Many of the soldiers I've served with have tattoos. Most of those tattoos in some way commemorate their military service. Some are rifles, some are bayonets, some are American eagles. On the veterans my age, the ink is fading. On the young ones, it's still fresh and bright. I never got one. I never had the money to waste on one. Now that I have the money to get one, it's not anything I feel the need to have. But if I were to get one, it would simply read, American Veteran. No need for anything fancier. You've been listening to Reflections from the River. I'm Bill Enyard. You can email me at bill at billenyard.com. That's B-I-L-L at B-I-L-L-E-N-Y-A-R-T dot com. Audio production is by Tom Calhoun. He's at www.pagytom.com. That's P-A-G-U-Y-T-O-M dot com. Thanks for listening.